But it wasn't really until March of that year that the concept that we might be in for something really, really big dawned on me. Uh, as we went through the period of April, May, June, both the Prime Minister and myself started to believe that something bigger might be coming for us. That is a loss of 100 points. Microsoft certainly set up for a down day after that disappointing outlook, talking about a slow economy. What we're seeing in the global equities markets, and that's what these traders are focused on. They're looking at the slide in stocks around the globe, and oil is falling as well. But I must note that What you just heard were the voices of panic-stricken American economists trying to make sense of a market crash that would soon become known as the global financial crisis. So this is clearly a dramatically lower open for stock It is, it right is incredible because we're sitting here watching and waiting. Markets were crashing, bankruptcy looming, and an overall sense of fear spreading through not just the US, but the entire world. What was coming was the largest global recession since the 1930s and an economic collapse totaling almost $2 trillion. The financial world as we knew it was evaporating, hundreds of thousands of people losing their jobs, millions losing savings, and entire countries on the brink of economic collapse. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. <laughs> Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. Soon to be outgoing U.S. President George W. Bush addressed the American people. We've seen triple-digit swings in the stock market. Major financial institutions have teetered on the edge of collapse, and some have failed. As uncertainty has grown, many banks have restricted lending. We are in the midst of a serious financial crisis, and the federal government is responding with decisive action. Leaders from around the world were trying to issue a sense of calm to their people. This is a decisive uh, moment for the world economy. The decisions that we make now will affect our world for a decade or more to come. More than 25 banks around the world have failed or have been bailed out. Share markets around the world have suffered large losses. And the reality is, in recent days, we have entered a new and damaging stage in the global financial crisis. In Australia, newly elected Prime Minister Kevin Rudd gave Australians a reassuring message with a blunt reality. The truth is that what Australia is experiencing is the economic equivalent of a rolling national security crisis. There is going to be a lot of rough weather ahead. And I just want to level with you. Alongside him, the man tasked with preparing Australia for the potential devastation of an incoming financial tsunami was this week's guest, former Treasurer and Deputy Prime Minister, Wayne Swan. Uh, as we went through the period of April, May, June, uh, both the Prime Minister and myself started through our international travels, but also through our inquiries uh, with people we knew around the world to believe that something bigger might be coming for us. Gee, this is a bit uncertain in the global economy. Um, 
what's going on. But it wasn't really uh, until uh, uh, Bear Stearns collapsed uh, in March of that year. 51 points. Bear Stearns today leading the tumble on Wall Street. The stock plunging 45% after the New York Federal Reserve and J.P. Morgan agreed to provide an emergency financing to the Wall Street firm. Uh, that the concept that we might be in for something really, really big uh, really dawned on me. Uh, and at that stage, didn't really dawn, and, and the Prime Minister at that stage. One day while we were on holidays, I had to go up to um, the surf pub at Maroochydore to do a press conference about uh, the behaviour of the banks. But I don't know if you're too familiar with the Marucci Surf Club or, or, or the derivation of the word Marucci. Uh, but the word Marucci means black swan. And of course, the book that was most prominent uh, on sale about economics and politics over that period was Black Swan. And the book Black Swan was about once in a thousand year events. So that day, as I wandered in, as I wandered in to do my press conference in the room that was the Black Swan room, I thought, yeah, I hope there's no cameraman here who uh, smart enough to get a to get a picture of me doing the press conference in the Black Swan room, um, because around that time I, I I had been doing a lot of reading. I've been reading about the Great Depression. Uh, I've been I've been reading current literature. Uh, and that was, you know, really the day that I looked up and thought, you know, what if, what if it is a once in a thousand year event? There's something incredibly poetic about that, isn't there? In a way, is, in yeah. a tragic, in a tragic sort of way. Yeah. And then I, I, I note in your in your book as well, you make comment about the fact that when you received the call from Hank Paulson, where he made the uh, the comments that there was a big if attached to what was going to happen with uh, the mortgage situation in the United States that uh, you were in the pouring rain outside the Cotton Tree News Agency in a Ford Territory. This was just after Bear Stearns had collapsed and things had stabilised and Paulson didn't seem to be all that disturbed, but he did put a caveat in our discussion about what might happen in housing. And of course it was around that time that the big banks started to um, move for out of cycle interest rate rises. And my comment was, well, look, things have settled down. You know, the, the Fed's got it under control. The government knows what it's doing. Uh, and he just looked at me. And he said, this isn't the end. This isn't, this isn't the beginning of the end. This is just the end of the beginning. what the end of the beginning so you you think Bear Stearns is just the end of the beginning that there's a lot more of this that's about to happen yep by this point I know you've been talking about it it's financials led by Bear Stearns after what essentially is a bailout from the Fed Bear Stearns shares are down 90% this morning and it's not just Bear pretty much every single bank is plunging in early trade this morning Lehman which is very similar to Bear and its reliance on fixed income is down nearly 30% you have big names like Goldman Sachs down 8% Citigroup down 8% so it is pain across the board
and I and I leaned over to Ken Henry and we had a subsequent conversation and said we better we better start thinking about our budget settings because at that stage the big macroeconomic problem we faced was uh, really high inflation uh, and we were preparing a budget which was deflationary. This is a really important point, isn't it? Because at that point in time, your objectives were categorically opposed to each other in, in a way that people couldn't really see because they couldn't project what Tim could project with his insight into what was going on. They could only see the fact that we were on the back end of enormous growth in Australia over the preceding couple of decades to the point where interest rates were at 7%. And then suddenly you're sitting there trying to negotiate savings on a budget to stop inflationary pressure. And then you've got someone like Tim and the IMF and your colleagues saying, wait, there's a wave coming and we need the economy to be growing. We can't be too contractionary. Well, it wasn't really the IMF. They weren't saying that at that stage. So, so I, and, and Kevin, who'd been overseas as well, had started to get similar indications from people. So when I got back, we put our heads together and we didn't proceed uh, with some of the harsher spending cuts because of it. And I got really, really carved up uh, over that as in my first budget. We'd wimped it. We hadn't gone hard enough. Um, you know, and I remember going to the press club, uh, which is the traditional speech you give the day after you deliver your budget on the Wednesday lunchtime and, and getting attacked by journos. And, and one of them uh, said, well, you know, you should be really careful what you, what, what you wish for, because we're not going to drive our economy into a wall. And I think many of them thought, well, that's all sort of too hyperbolic. It's you know, a bit over the top. But subsequently, I mean, had we actually proceeded on our original path, not taken notice of those warnings, then the budget would have been, you know, just landing completely in the wrong place uh, at the wrong time. The August and September period in 2008 is really interesting to me because you have a meeting at uh, Kirribilli House, uh, or correction, sorry, at the Lodge, uh, with... The Prime Minister at the time, Kevin Rudd, Ken Henry, the Treasury Secretary, your staffers, uh, and yourself. And at that point in time, it's it's one of the first times that really the scale of what's going to be required from a fiscal policy point of view is put on the table. Ken Henry talks at that point in time about 1% of gross domestic product, which is at that time roughly about $10 billion for Australia. And then within a month, Lehman Brothers collapses. Lehman Brothers is going bankrupt, and financial markets from Asia to Europe are doing their utmost to prevent Monday from turning from dark to black. All of a sudden, the concept of too big to fail in the global economy is fundamentally questioned. Everybody in the West, at least, owns, a lot of people have got pensions, and these pensions invest in stock markets, and a lot of the shares are actually the shares of banks. And when, the ba when bank shares get hammered, people's pensions get hammered, so everybody loses. Fourth largest investment bank in the United States is allowed to go bankrupt. And suddenly crisis levels of confidence, uh, or lack thereof, circulate through. And suddenly this idea of stimulus, which was anathema to policymakers across the spectrum, really, before that point in time, suddenly became a really feasible part of the equation along with monetary policy. But can you talk a little bit about what it was like when you heard about Lehman Brothers collapse and how that changed the dynamic of those conversations that you were having? Sure. Well, I mean, basically the whole financial system of the world was rocking and falling over. I mean, uh, investment banks, banking banks across the developed world were, were, were going over. Um, 
and economies were shrinking. So as you went through the period from the 15th of September, right through to you know the Christmas of that year, basically uh, the global economy was in freefall, just as it has been in freefall uh, for the last uh, four or five months. Um, I got this vivid memory of actually going to um, going to New York and meeting with the Fed uh, in January uh, of 2009, when basically the global economy was at its lowest ebb, and there and 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 uh, officials, uh, leading politicians were incredibly fearful about where the year was going to go, and sitting in the meeting with the Fed, and and, and discussing the size of our next stimulus package because essentially. The first one came down in October and the second one was delivered uh, in uh, early February. Um, and basically it was essentially three or four times larger uh, by the time we delivered it. I asked the Fed, well, what do you think? What size of stimulus do you think that we need? And they said, use overwhelming force. And if there's any doubt, do more, not less, uh, which is what we did. I want to talk about what it was like to be a part of the press conference that you had to do at very short notice on the evening that you heard or the afternoon that you heard that Lehman Brothers had collapsed because that was posted in the United States somewhat characteristically, I suppose, at one o'clock in the morning or thereabouts. But at that time, it was question time in Australia. And so that news was coming through at peak political hour for us. And then all of a sudden, within a few hours, you have to front up in front of the cameras and address the nation along with the Prime Minister about potentially the largest event that's ever hit the global financial system. What was that experience like? Well, you, you, if, you've, if you've read the material from the time, the sort of language we used, if, if you wanted to be anywhere in the world in the middle of a crisis like this, be in Australia, which, which is essentially, which was a truism, uh, but uh, in the absence of any detail, you had to reassure people about our fundamental strengths, which would see us through. And that's all you... How much of that at the time did did you truly believe versus was that confidence building? Because I know that Australia's economy was strong at that stage. I'm sure you were aware of the fundamental strengths of the reforms leading up to that point. But these were unknown times. And the scale of this issue was so immense that there must have been a part of you that was a little scared that you had to, to be the person who was building optimism despite the fact that it may not necessarily be true. Sure, but, but, but there was no alternative. Uh, and there was a truism to it, but we didn't know how big the problem was and how quickly it was coming for us at that stage. We determined very early on that we were going to do everything we could in the face of the crisis to protect our people. Uh, it was really that simple. We also, because of the nature of the political debate in Australia about uh, uh, deficit and debt, that whatever we did to, spend, to, to, to provide resources to support employment uh, and to drive the economy would be heavily criticised and demonised. But we knew uh, that um, that uh, that we were doing the right thing and, and we knew the demonization would come with it and it's demonization that, that that basically continued until about march or april of this year when suddenly it became the correct response tell me a little bit about what it was like to be in the cabinet room at that stage uh, with your colleagues and talking about these sorts of things what was the sentiment and 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 how was the the team working together because it was all developing so rapidly well it was handled you know uh, across the leadership team in the first instance and then with the wider cabinet but that was essentially um, uh, Julia Gillard Kevin Lindsay Tanner the finance minister and myself 
because things were moving so quickly uh, that we, we were constantly talking, you know, most days um, and, and regularly meeting. I mean, for, from the period of the collapse of Lehman Brothers all the way through to Christmas, you know, we actually had a, had a crisis response group that had regular meetings. Sometimes they'd meet, you know, once a day, twice a day, five times a week, whatever, whatever was required with a few. I mean, and also because so many of the events were occurring, you know, in, in New York time zones uh, or American time zones. I mean, we were frequently meeting at odd hours and certainly in talking to people at, at odd hours. So we were really on a 24 hour cycle for, for many, many months. Uh, following the collapse of Lehman Brothers on the 15th of September. Tell me about how you were sustaining yourself at this point in time in your team, because this sounds to me like an incredibly sustained high work requirement, that there's no alternative, it has to be done. So how do you maintain performance in the critical people that you need to when that is such a concentrated group at a national level at this sort of stage? Well, you've got to, you've got to have good relationships and you've got to be able to work together. And, and, and I, I think we did, we did do that, but it was the urgency of the, of the task that um, really bound people together. For that period, uh, it was an incredibly effective group. So it wasn't just the, the, the major ministers. There, there, there were other ministers as well, people like Jenny Macklin and so on, uh, who, who were, were deeply involved in parts of the stimulus. Uh, senior officials from the Treasury, uh, people in the personal offices. I mean, when Lehman Brothers went down, there was one staff member in my office who I, I think was there most nights, you know, for weeks. <laughs> and, and the fable is that he left his car somewhere and didn't go back and get it. Hard work was not something that um, w was new to uh, many of the people that were involved in this response. Tell me a little bit about the public service effort that it took to get a $10 billion stimulus package out before Christmas in that year, because that had never been done before. In the 1990s, the stimulus had come out and come out much, much later over a longer protracted period to the point where some might describe it as even being almost counterproductive. Um, but you guys were able to put something out of that caliber and that scale in, in a record time for the public service. What was that process like? I, I just think good, very good staff work and a bit of a bit of rat cunning as well. One of my staff members who knew social security very well, who I won't name, um, very early on thought that this might be a possibility. And, and, and he had checked out thoroughly the dates by which we had to have um, a decision if we were to get money in people's pockets before Christmas so they could spend it over Christmas. And we made that by you know just a matter of days. I was sitting around as we, as we got through Christmas, ringing the heads of the major supermarkets to find out what their, their, their sales were and how they were going. And I got really excited when I discovered just around Christmas or just after that the biggest selling item in Woolworths, I think was um, lamb roast. Now, why was, that, why was that important? Because they were actually buying the basics. They did go out and spend that first stimulus uh, on, on the basics. Uh, and that's what we wanted because confidence was key. We knew that, that, that the first stimulus had to tell people we were going to back them, uh, tell people we had, you know, that we, we knew what we were doing uh, and to let people know that we would continue to do it. So the, from the minute we put the first stimulus out the door, we were doing the second. Um, and, and, the, and the combination of both coming so close together meant that 
the, out, the, the output of both stimulus packages was greater than the sum of its parts because confidence is king. If they worked together, they created an environment where it worked even harder for every dollar. One of the um, one of the nice anecdotes that I've, I've heard you tell about this time is the fact that many of the conversations you were having over that Christmas period as that stimulus package was being delivered uh, were happening from the back deck of your old Queenslander um, among the eucalyptus and among the birds. And I have this uh, really fascinating image in my head of like poor ASIO and the federal police having to monitor the neighbours in Queensland of your house to make sure that they weren't getting critical information with regards to the financial stability of the country at that time. Yeah, well, it, I, I didn't get those sort of cameras until I became Deputy Prime Minister. <laughs> in which case, they do do that. Um, I did a lot of my international calls from the back deck for, for people listening to, because I got a, a lot of sort of palm trees and so on. It means you get those screeching parrots, you know, you get nectar. Yeah. So I don't know what they thought about all of that. It's just a little bit of tourism promotion, isn't it, during a global financial crisis? Never let a good opportunity go to waste. I, I remember that dur during the. Um, the second stimulus, I had a period of, of intense uh, dental work being done. Um, <laughs> God, you poor thing. <laughs> going into the dentist and thinking, I don't know, what, don't know what's worse, you know. <laughs> one day, and one day I came back from the dentist, we were having one of those calls, and my tooth just fell out in the middle of the Oh, call. my God. <laughs> <laughs> This week's episode of The Risk Equation is brought to you by Old Drop Coffee. For those of you who don't know, Old Drop is an online coffee marketplace where you can buy local, small business, Melbourne coffee grounds for as little as $14 a bag. That's about 80 cents a cup. Now, originally when we partnered with Nick and Old Drop, we had a 10% discount code that you could apply at checkout. And this was an awesome way to give you guys a chance to support the show and save a bit of cash as well. But as we've continued to work with the guys at Old Drop, we've decided that instead of a 10% discount, each week's code will instead donate 10% of your purchase to a charity of our guests choosing. Buying a couple of bags of coffee is an awesome way to support the show, but now it's also a fantastic way to support some amazing charities. And this week's charity is Canteen Australia. So our code for this week is RISCCAN. That's R-I-S-K-C-A-N. Canteen is a charity helping young people cope with cancer. Through Canteen, they learn to explore and deal with their feelings about cancer, connect with other young people in the same boat, and also, Canteen can provide specialist youth-specific treatment teams. By supporting Canteen, you're ensuring that they can be there for young people when they need them most. So thanks to Alt Drop for sponsoring this week's episode. Again, each purchase using the code RISCCAN will donate 10% of your checkout price to Canteen Australia. Thanks for listening, and now let's get back to the show. The pain, of course, for the global economy was really only just beginning at that stage. Lehman Brothers was a huge shock, but it wasn't the end of the equation. It was really the beginning of the seriousness of it. This is going to be one of the watershed days in financial markets history. It was a manic Monday in the financial markets. And Washington Mutual Bank collapsed a little bit later at that point in time. Um, biggest savings bank failure in US history, I think it was recorded as. Um, and then the US Congress started talking about a $7 billion financial 
rescue package, which was then voted down amazingly in the first instance, which put a massive confidence shock into the system. So all of these developments, which by themselves would be groundbreaking economic uh, developments, were happening on an almost daily basis at this point in time. And I know that at that point in time as well, you were very closely monitoring uh, what the RBA was doing because monetary policy was happening in conjunction with your fiscal policy and specifically what they were going to do to rates. And there's a meeting in particular that I want you to give uh, a little bit of your impressions about, which was when the RBA was just announcing that they were going to cut the rates by one basis point, uh, which was a huge drop at that point in time, double what was recommended, in fact, in their briefing papers. Um, and that was in the middle um, of a strategic priorities and budget committee of cabinet meeting as well. So everyone who was important from a government point of view was around the table. What was that day like and, and how did that play out? Well, that was a incredible day because we didn't know what the Reserve Bank was going to do. And we certainly had no expectation it was going to do 100 basis points. But we were planning and had our first discussion that day of what a, um, our first stimulus might look like. So this is about two weeks out or three weeks out from the delivery of that stimulus. Because Australia is facing an unfolding national and international uh, economic emergency, the Government of Australia is today launching an unprecedented $42 billion nation-building and jobs plan to support jobs and to invest in Australia's long-term economic future. We had a discussion about the, you know, the figure of 1% of GDP, what might that look like? And it was that day we started talking about how we'd get the checks out, who would, who would, who, could it be done in time for Christmas, that sort of stuff. Australia faces a very stark choice. That is whether government acts, seeks to intervene, to reduce the impact of this unfolding global economic recession, or the alternative, which is for government simply to fold its arms and to allow the free market to let rip. Well, this government has charted its course of action and it is resolved to act. The news came through that the Reserve had, um, uh, had, had slashed rates. And that came as a real surprise. Ken Henry was in the room uh, in Brisbane and had sent uh, his, um, one of his lieutenants to the Reserve Bank board meeting. So he clearly didn't necessarily know it was going to be of that magnitude. But it was yet another, another message to us that we weren't the only people who thought this was, this was big and it needed a significant response. This plan is part of our strategy to see Australia through this economic crisis, a crisis not of Australia's making. We believe it is a strategy in which the nation can have confidence. There was some internal reluctance in parts of the, the government and parts of the bureaucracy to a significant stimulus package at that stage, but people saw it as a bit, being a bit premature. But when the Reserve Bank came through with 100 basis points, well, um, they, uh, uh, that sort of basically slipped away because essentially our monetary authorities uh, were obviously hearing what many of us have been hearing and, and were clearly very worried. It is a strategy in which the nation can have confidence. And as I have said before, it is a strategy to which we will add in the future as is necessary. The government remains determined to take whatever further measures are necessary to continue to support growth and jobs and the stability of financial markets uh, into the future. Well, we didn't announce our package for another week or so, but we got in just in the nick of time. Um, 
with the, both the bank guarantee and the announcement of the stimulus. Uh, but that was that was certainly a big turning point, that meeting in Brisbane and the decision of the Reserve in Sydney. A few days after that, you were in the US again, which I guess it was a, to now the idea of such rapid international travel seems like a fantasy land, but nonetheless, that was happening at this stage. And those in-person meetings were very much target, targeted uh, towards a global strategy and response. And I think people can forget how important Australia's role was in coordinating that response because the big push was to get the G20 recognised as the primary global body to deal with this problem. And for those people who aren't aware, I suppose, the, the G7 at that point in time, which was made up of, sort of the seven largest economies in, in the world, um, had been the preeminent sort of global authority in, in many economic matters up until that point. But it didn't include countries like India. It certainly didn't include Australia. It didn't include Indonesia and so forth. Very significant economic players. And Australia was a part of the G20 and had a, a nice middleman role to play because we lived sort of partially in the developed world and the developing world. And we had good relationships and credibility on both sides of that equation. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what was involved in Australia's diplomacy and your role in that and, and your team's role in that in, in getting the G20 to the point where it was the primary international body that was addressing this? Well, Kevin had been lobbying for it and, and I'd been lobbying for it as we'd moved around the world. Um, and of course, the lobbying got more intense as the economic situation uh, deteriorated. And that was squarely on the agenda because, as you've just said, I flew to the US the day after that cabinet meeting in Brisbane attended a, a round of meetings in New York and then headed up to Washington to, for the IMF meetings, but also as part of the effort to lobby uh, for uh, the G20, of which we, we would have been uh, a member. I, I think Australia did bat well above its weight uh, in, in those discussions, including uh, our embassy in Washington. And the beginning of all of that was after we'd been at the IMF meeting uh, that week that I was in Washington, um, that there was an emergency uh, meeting of the G20 finance ministers. The G20 uh, at that point was just finance ministers. It had never been a leadership meeting. So we, we had an emergency meeting of the G20 finance ministers following the IMF meeting. And out of the blue, George Bush turned up. And I knew then when, when uh, George Bush uh, turned up at that meeting unexpectedly uh, that, that the G20 proposals that we've been lobbying for and others have been lobbying for were, um, were, probably, uh, were probably going to happen uh, if he'd turn up uh, almost unannounced at a finance minister's meeting uh, like that. And I remember uh, when he'd finished his address, uh, there were a couple of humorous moments in that. Uh, he walked down the side of the meeting uh, shaking hands with finance ministers and he shook my hand and said, Wayne Swan from Australia, said, yes, I've been talking to your prime minister. And uh, which he did after that too. And I knew then that the chance that we might have actually had a win turning the G20 finance ministers meeting into a G20 leaders meeting uh, was very much uh, on the cards. And of course it was that night uh, that I uh, went back to, to the embassy and phoned into the cabinet meeting in Canberra that was finalizing the first stimulus, which we were going to announce the next week. Um, so I was able to actually provide direct input into our discussions about the size of the stimulus, how things were going in Washington, what things were looking like. Tell me about what it was like in the room at the finance minister's meeting. How was everyone feeling? How were people talking to each other? Because I think it becomes, it can be difficult for the average person to get a sense about what it's like to be in some of these decision-making bodies and how the relationships are working and how the behind the scenes work is happening. Oh, there was fear in the room. 
people, people, people knew that lives, livelihoods were on the line. Everyone, what everyone was talking is, is basically that everyone's job is gone. It's um, very mysterious. People just walk around, not sure what's happening. Some people are wrapping up all their belongings. I mean, recessions. Uh, they destroy individuals. Uh, they destroy communities. You know, um, big choices were there. Many possibilities, but uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of people in Lyman fire today. A lot of people in Merrill Lynch. Uh, and the great thing was the G20 did work as it came together for the months that followed and for that period uh, it worked and it worked well and because there was you know, decent leadership whatever you think of George W Bush for all his other sins he walked into that room of the finance ministers that evening and apologized for the actions of the American financial system and what had occurred in it and the dramatic impact that it had on the rest of the world and said he got a accept responsibility for trying to lead, lead uh, the, our way out. I mean, he was incredibly humble. Yeah. No, it's, it's difficult to imagine that sort of humility today. It must have been uh, interesting for you reflecting a few years down the track as well on that meeting because uh, you became the third longest serving uh, finance minister in that group by the time that you stepped away from it. Um, and that's of the group of 20. Um, and I guess that reflects on the instability of the time as well. That there were a lot of governments that were losing office as a consequence of this as well. Well, they were. I mean, finance ministers were hitting the deck everywhere for the next sort of next six years. Uh, you know, that essentially I did the job for for six years, and there weren't many left by the time that um, uh, uh, we were defeated. The difficulties, of course, went on from there. Uh, the first stimulus package was a success, but in some ways it paled in comparison to what was going to be required. Um, and by the time that November comes around of, of that year, 30 major banks have been bailed out internationally. All the G7 countries had recorded negative growth um, and the global stock market was down 50%, which of course at that time was unheard of. Obviously today we have different reference points given what we've recently been through. Um, but somewhat amazingly, and I imagine to a considerable relief to you as well, um, Australia managed to hold the line and we are actually recorded positive growth from our September numbers for the December release of 0.1%, uh, which, you know, is truly just getting across the line. But at that stage, that means that we stayed out of the talk of recession, which was pivotal to maintaining consumer confidence in that period too. Um, and it was just an interesting reflection, I suppose. Well, what do you think it was that truly allowed us to, to maintain those figures relative to all of these incredibly strong economies around the world, just not even being able to hold a candle to it? Well, we, we put in place the second biggest stimulus uh, of any country in the world. China was the biggest. Now, those stimuluses all look rather modest, given the amount of stimulus that's being deployed around the world right now. Uh, but the key to our stimulus uh, was in its structure. We, we, we started with households who were cash constrained. Um, we held confidence up. Then our second stimulus spread out more broadly to the population with um, tax bonuses, which were more broadly spread, and then big investment in um, shovel-ready infrastructure, which went on for two or three years. So we basically built uh, a bridge from both sides of the divide and joined it in the middle. So we, we started with short-term uh, pump priming, 
We then added some longer-term pump priming, but longer-term uh, stimulus and shovel-ready projects. The two combined, uh, and as a consequence, we, we didn't have a recession. And then we had one of the best-performing developed economies in the world for the next decade, basically. What was the decision-making like during this period? Because you're having to make rapid, huge decisions, but make them in a thorough way. Because if you don't make them in a thorough way, all of the spending could go to waste. And we're talking about a lot of spending, and that's spending that's going to have to be paid back year on year. How do you do that? Well, we did it reasonably well, notwithstanding all the propaganda about it. The schools program, if you go and look at all of the evaluations about about the schools program, it was one of the most efficient and effective um, infrastructure programs ever deployed by the Australian government, given the time and speed. But we did that knowing that we would be criticised and there'd be some places where they'd find a, a, a hall that was too expensive or someone had stuffed up the project. I mean, it is the building industry. You, um, but, it, it, and ditto, even with home insulation, which they've had a Royal Commission into uh, and sought to, you know, use the, the, the unfortunate deaths uh, of young workers as a political tool, when in fact, occupational health and safety was not something within the pur purview even of, of of our program, um, but you know, in, in, in a, with hindsight, uh, would we have sat down and did some of those uh, programs slightly differently? Yes, but we wouldn't have rolled it out when it was needed. So, um, you know, you, you always have plenty of people willing to criticise, but if you don't take the decision, have the resolve, you miss the moment, and then you live with the consequences. And there are consequences on both ends, aren't there, to real people? With the package of $40 billion, the second stimulus package, um, that was a, uh, an order of magnitude beyond what had been done before. And it was in response to a crisis that was an, an order of magnitude beyond anything that had been seen. Uh, but tell us about what the fight was like to get that over the line, because that you would think, given the circumstances, would be a fairly uncontroversial thing to be doing. But of course, we're looking with retrospect at this um, from the age of coronavirus. But at that time, it was opposed by the opposition, uh, in fact. Can you talk me through what the parliamentary process was to get that through? It was knocked back on its first passage through the Senate. You know, that, that's how bloody minded they were about it. I, uh, we, we were debating it in the house all night. Um, I have a vivid memory of you know, giving one of my last speeches on the bill at about 4 a.m. in the morning after I'd been woken up to say, it was, you've got to go back in and you know, have, have the final say on the bill. Um, they, they were in maximum destructive demonization mode by that stage. And it was, it, it was tough. And when it, went, when it went down in the Senate, it was a fundamental blow to confidence in the country, and luckily, uh, the independents moved and we got it back up there and we got it through and rectified it pretty quickly. But it was tough. But it was also tough getting it through internally. I mean, I, many people understood that this was big. Some would have thought it was too big. I, I thought it was better to err on the size of big rather than smaller. Um, and as it turned out, I don't think, um, given the nature of the global economy for the next six years or so, uh, we needed that tail. Uh, even though we had a, a, a mining boom kick in a year or year and a half later. Um, the, the combination of that and the mining boom worked very well for Australia because you might recall the rest of the world was in a complete funk for at least half a dozen years. 
We had the sovereign debt crisis uh, in, in Europe. We had the Greek crisis in Europe. We had the banking crisis in Europe. We had the debt cap crisis in the United States. Uh, there was just catastrophe after catastrophe going on and unemployment across the rest of the developed world uh, right through um, most of this, the, the, well, the six years and after was far higher than any, anything like it was in Australia. So we faced adverse international conditions. So the size of it was controversial. I think looking back at it now, uh, it, probably, it wasn't too big. I thought it probably was a little big at the time, but it was worth taking the risk. Someone outside thought it was too big, but that wasn't the view of myself or the Prime Minister. The benefits of that, of course, we're still feeling today and have been vindicated by subsequent actions in global crises today. When, I guess, there would have been a chance you'd think to take a, a deep breath and look back at the work that had been done and be somewhat satisfied uh, with the crisis that had been averted or at least mitigated in Australia, uh, the Victorian Black Saturday fires hit. There's a loss of over 100 lives uh, down in Victoria. Of course, we've, we've suffered terrible fires since then as well, but at that stage, they were the most significant that our country had ever faced in living memory. And it seems to me that it must have been almost unrelenting for you at that stage, where you'd just gotten through this incredible year, your first year in government, um, and when you're meant to be able to take that time, suddenly this comes up. Well, it was, it was tragic and... It, and there were and there were any number of those events. I mean, that was obviously the one of the larger ones. But I mean, there was the Brisbane floods that, <laughs> you know, there, there were there, there were big events that were happening, which, in particular, the Brisbane floods, <laughs> that didn't have the death toll, but had a dramatic economic impact. In fact, they sent the economy backwards one quarter. <laughs> you might recall, um, and they all came along just when we thought we were over the hump of everything. <laughs> So there's always something around the corner. I guess to cap off this this moment in time, because of course we, we could talk about a great deal of uh, your career, there's, there's so many interesting facets to it, but to focus a little bit just on, on this to finish, what would it feel like in 2011 uh, to be named Finance Minister of the Year by Euro Money magazine, joining Paul Keating as the only Australian treasurer to be awarded that, that title to Labor treasurers, I should point out as, as well. That must have been a really special moment as a testament to the work of your team. It, it, it absolutely was. And I, I, was, in, I was incredibly chuffed, uh, not because I'm, I'm a collector of, of, of awards, but given the vilification and demonisation that, that had gone on, uh, it was, in a sense, uh, another uh, verification that we'd, we, we had acted correctly uh, and that whilst our actions were greatly admired all around the world, it just showed just how how puny and uh, um, scraggy the response of, um, uh, of of the opposition had been uh, throughout that whole period. Um, and you know, Hockey's speech in the Parliament the day it was announced will go down as one of the more disgraceful political efforts that, that he put, uh, in the Parliament um, and was unworthy uh, of of him. Um, but it. It didn't stop, and in effect, the award the awards of finance minister of the year was simply a spur for them to go even harder in their constant demonisation um, uh, of particularly me, but the Labor Party more generally. 
So for the six years I sat in the parliament after, uh, after our government as a backbencher, there wouldn't have been a question time go by on any day of that six years where there wasn't some derogatory sort of statement made about our stimulus, our spending and our debt. So to have that award sitting in the middle of it was a big up you <laughs> to the cult. <laughs> was there ever a moment where you were able to get some feedback from the community that gave you the sense of, of what you'd been able to avoid in Australia? Was there a moment where you could see in a tangible way that impact or was it always a oh, little yeah, bit... Absolutely. I mean, like, I, people, d despite all the demonisation in the Murdoch media, everything we did and you know, the, the complete negativity of the Liberal Party about, about it for a decade or so. I, I ne never fail to have people wander up when, when I'm just in the most unlikely of situations and say, you saved my job. You know, they, they might have had a small construction business. Whatever it is, there's, there's always a story that they, um, you know, they remember. Uh, and. Ironically, also, um, there, there's a different cohort, I hate that word, but I'll use it in this case because it's suitable. Um, uh, teenagers who are at school at that stage are a particular group who, who are switched on to it all. Um, and in fact, in terms of, in terms of our movement, we were, uh, a very significant number of them all joined our movement uh, after that period. Um, which was somewhat of a surprise, because you know it, it was a it was a very big event when it happened. It's easy now to, to, to think it wasn't, given the size of the pandemic and what's happened subsequent. But that event for two or three years was top of mind, uh, you know, from dawn to dusk, you know, for a very long period of time, uh, and it, it was embedded in the psyche, not just of their parents whose livelihoods might have been threatened, but also in, in, in that of many younger people at the time. Wayne, I want to say thank you so much uh, for taking the time to, to join me uh, this evening and, and talk to us about this period in history, because I think it's such an important time, especially now, um, to remind ourselves of what actually took place and the significance of it and how that decision-making was conducted um, and uh, it's such a pleasure to reflect with with you in particular about this because you were so central to it um, and uh, for you to, to take us through that uh, I know is going to be greatly appreciated by, by many people listening and hopefully in the years to come as well as we face the future crises that are sure to develop so thank you so much it's a pleasure thank you